Psalm 83. That's where we'll start tonight. We'll see where we land. Psalm 83 is what's called a, a national lament song. <laughs> it's something that I think we hear occasionally in uh, uh, our own nation, right? People lamenting <laughs> where we are, what's going on, what's happening. <coughs> the interesting thing is we look at Psalm 83. It's the last psalm written by Asaph. And as Asaph puts together uh, the concepts that he's going to be discussing, he is looking for... God's deliverance, and because we know the future, in essence, we know that the nation is going into captivity. So Asaph is is writing songs and psalms about the time the northern kingdom goes into captivity, or I'm sorry, the, the southern kingdom, northern kingdom's already gone into captivity, and so he's, he's asking God to deliver them. But ultimately what's happening is God's judging. So God is, well, let me back that up. So here's what we think sometimes when we think about God's judgment. We think about the bad thing, right? Oh, the bad thing that happens is God was judging me for, for something I'd done wrong. But God's judgment really comes a, a long time before that. See, what the Lord said through his prophets to, to the nation was that they were, he was going to give them poor leadership. That he would, they weren't going to have anybody they could count on to guide the nation. That they would, and, and if you look at their history, they'd have good king, you know, and things would go good. And they'd have like a, 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 a little bit of a revival. Things would start looking up a little bit. But somewhere down the line, a couple kings later, you have a really bad king. And you take a nosedive. And, and so the nation just barely come crawling out of that well that was the beginning of god's judgment because he's given them that leadership because that leadership is going to lead them to the place where the people are able to receive god's correction god's correction is going to happen when he takes them as a nation and he and he brings them into babylon as slaves and as they come into babylon as slaves i i just don't ever want us to lose sight of god's words when that's happening so they're going in as slaves, right? Everything's bad. So families tore apart, right? You've heard me say this a number of times. Like all the dads are in that line. Moms are in that line. Kids are in this line. You're going to different places to serve as slaves in a country. You can't speak the language. You, you don't, you're, you know, you're afraid. You don't know what's happening. It was in that context that God said to them, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord thoughts of good and not of evil so what's god telling them during that time <clears throat> this is not for your destruction the the chastening of the lord is never for our destruction our parents didn't spank us to destroy us our parents didn't discipline us to destroy us unless you had a a jacked up parent in which case forget about that example but f under normal circumstances right parents don't do that parents want to train up their their kids so they'll be okay they want their kids traditionally to have a better life uh than what than what we had and and have more opportunities than what we had so god certainly is not a worse father than our earthly examples and so as he sends them into captivity they're going in and the ones who are in line are going to spend their entire life there they're never coming back and as they go, not only does God say, I want you to know that, that I have a plan and a purpose, and, and I want you to, to recognize as you're going into this captivity, I want you to know I care about you. And I'm not, you're not here for destruction. You're here because I want to see you have a future and a hope. I want to see you encouraged. I want to see you elevate i want to see you be everything you can be so they go in but then the scripture goes on in jeremiah 29 you guys can look at it when when you got a minute uh, around verse 13 he says and when you're in this land you know and it's going to be weird and everything's different he says i want you to know uh, go and live build homes make a life and in the middle of it all when you want to seek me you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And the point is, up until that time, right, 
they're, they've, they're, they've got a space, they got a, they've compartmentalized their life, and their life has all this stuff going on, cool, neat, good stuff, but, but they've got this niche, right? They've, cut, they've carved out a niche for God. And the point is, God wants them to know, I, I don't want the niche. I want it all. No different than my wife doesn't just want a niche. <clears throat> right? Sometimes the niche is all she gets. But she doesn't want a niche. What does she want? She wants it all. She, it's no comfort to my wife. I come to her and say, you know, honey, I love you with some of my heart. Yeah, we all, we, we, we'd love to hear that. No, nobody wants to hear that. But sometimes that's how we love God, right? In Deuteronomy, in the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord said, His desire is that we would love Him with how much of our heart? All of our heart, right? And He goes past that, right? Not just our heart. He wants all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. So our entire being, right? <clears throat> so the nation of Israel has not been in that place. And Asaph, as he writes his psalm, there he sees it on the horizon. Now, none of that's happened yet. They haven't been conquered. He sees the bad guys coming. And he's looking to God and saying, God, stop it. Make them go away. And as we look at it, it's a, it's a lament for his nation. But the nation's going. The, the die's been cast. They're, they're going to fall into captivity. But it doesn't stop Asaph from crying out to God for his nation. Now, if we kind of back up a little bit from that scene and we consider ourselves and, and our nation and where we're going, we ought to have the same heart as Asaph. Now, our nation doesn't really have a place for God anymore. Once upon a time it did, right? Uh, every one of the coins in your pocket says, we trust in God, doesn't it? And, and the bills in your billfold, the, it cracks me up because... They pull out the Ten Commandments from all these courthouses. But you know they can't do that to the Supreme Court, right? Because it's carved in the building. They have to take the building down to do it there. <clears throat> Scripture is engraved throughout Washington, D.C. They have a, uh, what's it called? Like a, it's not the right term, but they have like a biblical heritage tour that you can do in Washington, D.C. to go through and see the biblical heritage. It's literally engraved in the stone. So you don't have to go, well, they didn't really, they weren't that into the Bible. It's everywhere. Bible verses all over the place <clears throat> in all the different monuments that are set up in Washington, D.C. Well, the point is that, that once upon a time, there was at least a desire within, the, as a nation, to, to follow God. Now, that's not who we are now. As a nation, that's not who we are. And God's judgment has already begun. Right? When's the last time you've seen strong leadership in our country? Just like what God talked about in Isaiah. So, so you see some of those things coming. Now, <clears throat> maybe one day there will be some big thing. I don't know. But there definitely we definitely see the fingerprints of God. Well, what, what should our attitude be then? Because maybe we've crossed as a nation. Maybe we've, I don't, I'm not saying we have, but maybe we crossed the threshold and judgment's coming. I don't know if that's true or not. But what should our attitude be as those who, <coughs> who love the Lord? <coughs> we should have the same attitude that Asaph did. It was, Lord, deliver us. Lord, take care of it. And it's a national prayer. Not just Asaph praying for himself. He's praying for his nation. That the nation's going to get on track. That God's going to deliver. That God's hand's going to be there. So hopefully we can just kind of see that in light of our need, right, as a as a nation for a, a national lament looking for God to move in our midst so that we can see His deliverance in our time. I mean, wouldn't it be great? So, here's what he says. He, he begins, Do not keep silent, O God, and do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. So, first part of the psalm, he's saying, God, just hear me, just listen. And, and he wants God to move. He wants God to move on behalf of his nation. You know, there's another guy who didn't write a psalm. I don't know if he ever wrote a song at all. But he did pray for his nation. He was a teenager at the time of, of the captivity. And so 
the, the Bible says when Babylon conquered the nation, they came into the, to the palace and they took the brightest young men. And they took all the brightest young men, they brought them into Babylon, but in order to utilize these guys and make them <coughs> a part of their society, they would make them eunuchs. So as a young teenage uh, boy, there's four of them that we know of, we have four names we know, they brought in, they're made into eunuchs, they joined the, the wise men, right, to learn the, the wisdom and the wise ways of Babylon, and this particular guy, as he goes through um, his life, he's going to live 70 years in captivity. And it's, Scripture says that captivity was drawing near its end. So it's almost the end of his life. He spent his whole life, no wife, no kids. That was all uh, taken away from him, that, the, those possibilities. <clears throat> but as he comes to the end of his life, and, and every reason to be bitter because... <clears throat> He was a kid, you know, he didn't make the choices for the nation, right? The nation did that stuff. But he finds himself there and he starts to pray for his nation. He asked God to forgive them. He prayed for them, which goes all the way back. Remember when Solomon dedicated the temple? <clears throat> and God told Solomon, now listen, you're dedicating the temple today, but there's a day I can see way out there somewhere where this is all going to fall apart. And when that day happens, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, right? If they'll repent and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. And so the young man's name was Daniel. His three buddies, you guys know their names? Yeah, the Babylonian names are easier ones to remember, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anybody remember the Hebrew names? Hananiah. Mishael and Azariah? Yeah, that's good. You win the Bible trivia contest. I have a blue M&M for you in my office. <laughs> Do you not supposed to tell me you cheat when I give you the prize? <clears throat> okay, so he's asking. Now here, same thing, same attitude, right? Lord, I want you to move. God, I want to see your, your hand and all this. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. So he's saying, God, these guys are your enemies. And when God brought Babylon and Assyria different times to judge the nation of Israel, right? God used people that weren't him. They, they didn't care about God. They don't believe in God. They don't serve God. They serve other gods. That, but God uses them. God uses their desire to destroy the nation of Israel, and he allows them to do it. He takes his hand of protection off. They destroy the nation of Israel, but God still holds them accountable for what they do to his people. So, in the same way, when, when that judgment comes, we see the, the enemies, the ones who come and bring judgment, are, are enemies of God too, he says. Here, your, your enemies make a tumult. Those who hate you have lifted up their head. The, the, the hatred of God. They have taken crafty counsel against your people. Isn't it a trip how weird the... the Laws and things are getting at the same thing at the time of, uh, of that Israel's going through this. They start making all these weird plans and strange laws and doing all these things to, <clears throat> to abolish really God's foothold in the nation. It says they have consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation. Now, have you heard that on the news at all? Have you watched the news at all this week? You heard that. What does every enemy of Israel say right now? What does it make you feel like if you lived in Buell and Castleford and Filer and Twin Falls and Hagerman, all lifelong enemies, and every time one of those guys gets on the news, they say, you know, we'll be happy when everybody in Buell's dead. Because Buell's not all that big a place, right? Neither is Israel. Pretty small. But that's the, that's the attitude you hear people say. We want that we, we'll be happy when Israel's gone, when they're all dead. Do you see the interview? I don't know if you guys saw the interview. You see the interview of a, a Jewish reporter talking to a Palestinian kid? And he asks the Palestinian kid, and the Palestinian kid says, Yeah, if I see Jews, I stab them. He's like, Really? Why? Did they, have they done something to you? He says, No, no, it's just. 
you know, that's a, a good Jew's a dead Jew. This is like a, I don't know how old the kid looked, like 12 years old maybe. I don't know, not old, not super old. If he's, if he's a teenager, then I start thinking, oh, he's already, he's just acting like a teenager. That's nothing new. But this guy was kind of young. And finally the reporter tells him, tells the guy, well, I'm a Jew. And he grabs his little brother and they, they just take off. He doesn't want to talk to him anymore after that. But that's, uh, that's the attitude of the enemies, right, for the enemies of Israel. Now, I'm not saying Israel's good or somehow, <clears throat> you know, has done something special. They're just broke like the rest of us, right? But you see this hatred, and that's what, that's what he's noticing too. These guys are coming. They hate us. They hate us. Interesting that that hatred that we see there a lot of times, I, it's interesting to me because it is demonic. This is what God said. God said for, you know, you can make whatever case you want, but who really wants Jerusalem? What do you, what do you get there? A bag of rocks. A big bag of rocks. Oh, somebody will say, well, I heard they got diamonds there. Do you know how big Jerusalem is? It's not very big. It's definitely not worth all the fighting that people have been doing for the last thousand years plus. But the point is, Jesus said, Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling. It means people are going to fight over it. It's a demonic, it's it's a hatred of God issue. More than it is a hatred of people. And that's just going to be the way until Christ is king. Until he rules and reigns. Look what it says at the end of verse, or beginning of verse 4. They say, come, let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Now keep in mind what that means. Israel, more than just the nation, what's Israel mean? Governed by God. So the idea is, well, we don't want that. We don't want to be governed by God. We don't want to have to follow God. We're, <clears throat> it's an overall heart set toward rebellion against the things of God. And, and that's what's going on with the enemies, but those are the enemies God's using. Because that's part of the judgment that God's bringing on his nation. He's going to cure them of idolatry during this time. Now, as, as Asaph is asking, God, these guys are your enemies. Help us here. He goes on in verse 5 and says, For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. As over and over again in the Bible, we see the same thing. In, in the Qumran, you guys heard of Qumran where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls? In the Qumran um, uh, city, the society that was there, they, they had a lot of ancient writings they found, not just um, scripture. And one of the things they, they found, I'm trying to remember exactly how it went, but it was basically the sons of light against the darkness, or sons of God against the, the darkness. And this battle between good and evil <coughs> that they write out. And the concept is always like what we see in our stories, the same thing, right? That, that there's good and then there's, everybody's against it. The overall movement is against that which is good. And where did all that come from? Where did it all have its beginning? From the story that God told, from the, the story from Scripture, that God, everyone is against. Those who are in rebellion against God want to come against God and destroy it. They make a confederacy. But the Bible tells in Psalm 2, you guys remember Psalm 2? Because the Bible tells the same thing in Psalm 2. It says in Psalm 2, just flip over there real quick. It says in the beginning, we were there like two years ago when we started Psalm. The good news is we're, we're over halfway. Yeah, so only two more years ago. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a, a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. That's Yahweh, the name of God. Capital L-O-R-D. Everybody see it? <clears throat> and against his anointed. What's the Hebrew? The Hebrew word for anointed there is the word Messiah. So they come against Yahweh and against his Messiah. Now what's another word for Messiah? The, the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. So we, we, we know who he's talking about, right? They're coming against Yahweh. <coughs> They're coming against his Messiah. Saying, let us break their bonds and throw away their cords. We won't, so we won't have God rule over us. He who sits in the heavens, now he, the view goes to heaven. 
he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Really, all of man's rebellion, is it going to, is, is man somehow going to conquer God? No, that's not going to happen. So what's the Bible say God does? He laughs. Like, you bunch of knuckleheads, what are you doing? You, you cannot win this. You cannot win this battle. It says the Lord will hold them in derision, and he will speak to them in his wrath. That word wrath is, is orge. The, the concept is that of orge, or predisposed judgment. He'll speak to them like, look, if you reject God, what's, what's left? God set before them blessing and cursing, right? Life and death. And what did he tell the people? Choose what? Choose life. So you got this path. You got these two paths. God says choose life. But if you choose death, when the Bible talks about God's wrath, it's not necessarily talking that he's so mad at you he's about to lose control. But what it's talking about is you have chose the path of judgment. You chose the path of death. You chose the path that goes in the opposite direction of God. There's, there's no chance to, to win the battle that they have here. And back in uh, uh, Psalm 83, <laughs> they're coming against God. They make their plans. They got a confederacy. But he who sits in heaven laughs. This far and no further. Look what it says. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. Okay, so <clears throat> we have two ancient peoples mentioned in Scripture. Edomites. Edomites, where did they come from? They have a famous father. Anybody know? Esau. Esau, right? So remember Jacob and Esau? Jacob stole Esau's birthright. Remember they were brothers. Jacob becomes Israel. And the nation is birthed out of Israel, right? But Esau becomes the nation of Edom. So here they, they line up as a, an enemy, right? Esau and Jacob, they, they had a falling out. So now we go way out into the future. Edom now is a, is a nation, but they're against, <clears throat> they're against uh, Israel. What about Ishmael? There's a thing with Ishmael too. What was Ishmael's brother's name? We remember? Isaac and Ishmael, right? One was the son of promise. One is the son of the flesh. And so God chose uh, um, Isaac to bring the nation Israel through. So what, did, what happened to Ishmael? In essence, Abraham turned Ishmael loose, but God took care of him, didn't he? Then the Bible said, the Bible said God, God said, I'll take care of Ishmael. He gave him 12 princes. He made a mighty nation out of them. What nation is he? They call them the Ishmaelites here. The Ishmaelites. So you got the Edomites and the Ishmaelites. <clears throat> huh? That's right. That's right. So we have <clears throat> all the, the same people, just so you know, different names, but the same people fighting Israel still. So then we go, the Moabites and the Hagrites. Moabites, Mo, where do Moabites come from? We remember? Moabites, Lot's, remember the story of Lot? It's a twisted tale, right? Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed. <clears throat> Lot, it's Lot, did Lot's wife come with him? No, she come part way, right? And then she wanted to go back, so she turns into salt. So it's Lot and his two daughters, and bad stuff happens. Lot ends up fathering children with his two daughters. They become two people groups. We're going to see one of them is the Moabites. Remember the other one? The Ammonites. So you got the Moabites and the Ammonites. Well, here you have the Moabites and Hagrites. And then look what it says in verse 7. Gabal, Ammon, that's the other daughter, uh, the family of Lot, and Amalek. Remember the Amalekites? Everybody always points to the Amalekites. You know, God told them to wipe out all the Amalekites, but they, every time you turn around, you're running into an Amalekite. Why? They didn't wipe them out, right? They didn't take care of it. So, <coughs> you have the Amalekites still here. Counseling against, coming against God, right? So you have the Amalekites, the, the Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, and Assyria also is joined with them, and they have helped the children of Lot. So you have all these traditional enemies of God and Assyria in the mix. Assyria was the current power. Babylon's going to conquer Assyria, and then Babylon's going to become the power. But basically, you have all the traditional enemies of God coming against the nation, being named out here in verses 5 through 8 uh, by Asaph. Then, he, in, in, in verse 9 through 12, he asks God to do what he's done in the past to their other enemies, to the new guys. Well, look what he says. <clears throat> Deal with them as with Midian... As with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon. 
So this is taking the story of Deborah and Barak. Anybody remember that story? <clears throat> Deborah was a judge, <coughs> and Barak was uh, the general, the fighting force of Israel, and Barak was afraid to go to battle unless Deborah went with him. So God said, okay, I'm going to send, Deborah's going to go with you, but you're not going to get the victory, because you were afraid to go, and, and you wanted a woman to go, then a woman's going to get the victory. So Sisera is the one who, who uh, or what's the, what's the girl's name who killed Sisera? Anybody remember? Okay. JL, good job. That's my wife. I knew when I heard it, I'd remember it. <clears throat> so JL's the one. You guys, I don't know if you remember, tent stake in the head, gave him warm milk, he fell asleep. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Anyway, a angry woman is a bad place. That's why the Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Husbands, do not fall asleep with an angry wife. Especially if there's any tent stakes around. <laughs> Could be bad. Okay, verse 10, who perished at Endor and became his refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, yes, and the princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for possession. Now, he looks at Gideon. He's taking all these examples from the judges. Why do you think Asaph, as he's writing this story about a dark time in Israel's history, and their enemies are coming, why do you think he's pulling examples from judges? Well, the book of Judges, guys, is written to the nation at a time when everybody did what was right in their own heart. And it was one of the darkest times of the, of the nation of Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own heart. They just didn't have time for God. And so they would go, God would send them a judge who would lead them in deliverance. Remember, they'd have revival, things would go good, and then what would happen? Uh, times would get good and they'd forget about God and they'd get back down here in the, in the dirt and bad things would happen and they'd cry out to God for a deliverer and God would send a judge, right? Okay, so we got Samson during that time, we got Gideon during that time, we got Deborah during that time. A number of judges, very similar to the time period when we look at 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, which is the time period that we see Asaph writing these psalms. The split kingdom, <clears throat> they're having a hard time... So he's pointing to times as he's crying out for God's deliverance to times where God delivered when it was a similar time in history when the nation was really struggling. And so he's, he's building on these pictures. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, Oh God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. Now, it's funny. Occasionally when you get down into the Hebrew, you can get a better mind picture. It doesn't really... Doesn't really pop anything to mind. At first, the whirling dust, the, the, the word literally is the wheel. And the, the chaff is probably a bad translation. It's a picture of something blowing like a wheel in the wind. For you and me, it would be like a tumbleweed. So he's saying, make them like a tumbleweed. The wind's blowing, whoosh, there goes the tumbleweeds. Blowing across the, the desert, blowing out from one place to another. Just blow them out of here like a tumbleweed. As the fire burns the woods, and as a flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest, and frighten them with your storm. So again, God, do it. Because ultimately, is God able to deliver His people? Right. So if God doesn't do it, what's that mean? Yeah, that means, one, you're in trouble. But if God brings us into a time of judgment, is it for our destruction? It's to give us a future, right? To give us hope. And that's the purpose behind it. So if God says no, it's not to destroy the people, it's not to wipe them out, it's not to kill them. <coughs> it's to give them a future and a hope to establish them. It says in verse 16, Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish, that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. So Asaph crying out for his nation, God deliver us. They're coming down. We know they're going to go into captivity. God's deliverance is not going to come. But that's not a bad attitude for someone who loves God to have for his nation. When the children of Israel were taken into captivity into Babylon, do you know that God told them, pray, 
for the peace of Babylon. You're going to be living there. Pray for the peace of where you're going to be living. Well, why would, I, why would we do that? They're our enemies. Because you're living in it. If they don't have peace, you won't neither. Remember, God said, go, live. Live your life. Have peace. I want you to have a future. I want you to have a hope. I want you to seek me with all your heart. So pray for the peace of where you're at. If God told the nation of Israel to pray for Babylon, how much more does God want us, you and I, to pray for our nation? To not forget to lift our nation up, that God would uh, deliver us, be our strength. Do his perfect work in and through us, that we can be the, the men and women he wants us to be. And then we come to Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is a radical change. So you have the final psalm of Asaph in Psalm 83. And now we have a psalm in Psalm 84 from the sons of Korah. So this, uh, these the sons of Korah, Korah was a <coughs> worship leader around the same time as, as David, a little bit after David, but, but these are his descendants. So it kind of stayed in the family. You with me? They had, the, they had a, a song leader at one time, and now the kids all stayed in music, and they stayed in worship. And so this is going to be through that lineage of the sons of Korah. They're going to share. It's a familiar one. Or it should sound familiar. He begins, and the point of the psalm is to have the deep longing for God. A deep longing for God. Look, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. So as he begins, he begins with, the concept in this first part of the psalm of the desire, having a desire for God, a longing for Him. How did David say it? Like uh, the, that his heart would pant for the Lord like what? Like a deer pants for water. <clears throat> so the idea that longing, the same longing that an animal who's thirsty would have for water, he would have for the living God. That that would be his desire. He longs for it. It's a, it's, a, it's a passionate desire that he begins with, that he's, that he's crying out for. But, but it's interesting because we're probably dealing with a similar time frame as Asaph when we look at this scripture. But I want to invite you, if you uh, don't mind flipping over in your Bibles, to the, the book of Amos. Head over to Amos with me comes right after Joel. Amos chapter 8 and verse 5. And uh, here's what the Lord is saying. This is talking about the attitude in Amos. I just want you to see the attitude of the people probably around the same time frame that the sons of Korah are talking about having a passion and desire for God. Okay? Listen to the attitude that he says they have when they come to worship. It says, uh, look at verse 4. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed that we might sell grain? In other words, when's this dumb feast day over? It's Passover, or it's Pentecost, or it's the Feast of Trumpets, you know... Another new moon, another dumb feast. Why we got to be here? Uh, and then he goes on. And the Sabbath that we may trade wheat. Or trade wheat. When in the world is this crazy church service going to be over? Oh my gosh, got other things to do. Got other things that we should be making money. Making the ephah small and the shekel large. Falsifying uh, the scales by, de- by deceit. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The idea that they they were more concerned with ripping off their brother than they were uh, having a desire to be with the Lord. They were complaining about having to be with the Lord and having to go to the feast days and having to be about all those things. That was the attitude of the nation at the time when the sons of Korah are saying, man, how lovely is the dwelling place of God. Just being in the place where God is. <clears throat> Being in the place where, where we can feel God's presence. 
He's like, that's the point he's making. That's where I want to be. I want to be in the presence of God, in your tabernacle, in your presence. <clears throat> and then there's three things he talks about with a desire. What, what does his soul desires, his heart desires, his flesh desires. God wants us to love him with all our heart, soul, strength. Right? Heart, soul, strength. <clears throat> you can even say uh, mind and soul are the same. We see a very similar construct. He's saying everything within me, my heart, my soul, my flesh, they long, they want to be where God is. They want to be where His. And he, and he uses three different words for the desire. Longs, faints, and cries out. And the idea of the word cry out is like a, a song. It's like reaching a point where you just want to shout out a song. Well, oh, here's a great example. If you were at, uh, at a game in Boise, football game, and they score a touchdown, there's a certain area there in the, in the arena where guys are going to start singing a song, right? And when I was at the Holiday Bowl, probably one of the funnest things I've ever done, been at the Holiday Bowl, <clears throat> I don't remember who's there, I think it was Kansas State and Washington State, uh, but I don't remember. The two teams, and every time somebody scored, one side of, of the football arena would start singing the fight song from their school. And then the other guy would score, and they'd start singing it over there. And the bands were battling back. Everybody was having a ball. They just sprang into song. Why? Because they were passionate about their team. And their team scored. What happened? They want to sing the fight song. They want to start shouting and jumping up and down. And that's exactly the same word that's used here. <clears throat> I want to cry out. I am longing. I have this strong desire. And the, the idea of fainting is I've come to the end. I've come to the end of my ability to express my desire. And there's no other word for it. So he uses literally the word end. So I end. <laughs> I come to the end of me. And the best way they figured they could translate that was faint, pass out, fall on the ground, flop over. You, there's, there's nothing else that you have to give. <clears throat> and who is this longing for? The Lord of hosts for the living God. Right? Now look at verse 3. You can see the psalmist kind of looking at the temple area. There's the temple, tabernacle, all the stuff going on. He says, even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts. You, he sees a sparrow's nest at the altar. There's the altar where they, where they have all these uh, um, ceremonies, but he says, man, look at that, birds. Wouldn't it be cool to be a bird and just live right there on the altar? And you're so close to where all this stuff is happening for God. He says, man, even the, the sparrow, even the, <coughs> the swallow are right close to God at his very altar for the Lord of hosts. And look how he describes the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts as first my what? My king. And second, my what? God. What's he talking about when he says that? When he says, O Lord, my king... That, that God ought to be obeyed. You obey a king? Yeah, you obey a king. If he's your king, you do what he says. I still remember walking into MCRD San Diego. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't go to, what was that other one called? That's where they sent all the country guys. Went to Paris Island. What did they call that one? I don't remember. But, I went, to, I went to San Diego, uh, Marine Corps Recruit Depot. And we get off the bus. And I, at least I was smart enough to shave my head. I thought, I'm going to shave my head. But them, guy, them, them people, they're going to hurt you when they cut your hair. You know what they do when they sit you down in the chair? You sit down in the chair, and the guy who's probably if nobody special, the barber, he says, if you got a mole on your head put your finger on it that's all the time you got to do it because in the next second it took him about three passes to shave my head down to the I might have been a little below the skin if you didn't get your finger on a, on a little lump on your head it got cut off that's alright I reckon it will grow back they're not too worried about it so they put your finger on your head and the hair's all gone and then they give you a white 
t-shirt and red uh, uh, shorts. And they handed you these things and they said, this is called Go Fasters. It was tennis shoes. But you can't call them tennis shoes no more. Because they officially changed the name. You didn't know that yet. But you're about to find out. <clears throat> they hand you Go Fasters. These are your Go Fasters. And they give you all your stuff. <clears throat> and then the next two days they don't let you sleep. You don't sleep at all. They tease you. They get, you're busy running around doing all this stuff, getting your stuff put together and, and finding your, your unit, the platoon you're going to be with, and they're hollering and screaming at you all over the place, and they say, okay, go to bed. And you lay down, and I'm not lying to you. You lay down, put your head on the pillow. You might close your eyes, maybe, before they come running in screaming. Ah, get up, get up, get up, get up. They get everybody up, and then day two happens. And all the same stuff, and by day two, you're starting to think, how did I get so stupid? <laughs> and all you can think the whole time, you can't do nothing right. They say, take a step with your left foot. First step is always with your left foot. And they have this answer to them. <clears throat> I don't remember how it was now. 30 inch step with my left foot, sir, something like that. And <clears throat> so we're supposed to take a 30 and you'd step with your right foot. And then you would, and everybody's screaming and yelling, and you're thinking, how am I so dumb? Left foot, how hard is this? Not that hard. And you go through that whole day yelling, screaming, carrying on, and they lay you down in bed for, for that, at the end of that second day, they lay you down in the bed, you close your eyes, and as soon as you close your eyes, they come running in there again. Oh, let's get up, get up, get up, get up. And day three starts. Day three, you, you meet your real drill instructor. Up until that time, you never had your real drill instructor. You just had... Everybody you can imagine yelling at you. It's utter chaos. Three days. I'm, I don't even know which way's up. I haven't slept. I'm thinking I'm the stupidest guy on earth. Two reasons. I'm here. That's one. And two is I can't seem to do anything they're asking me to do. And they take you away. And your drill instructor takes you out. And he's hollering at you and all these other drill instructors. They get you all lined up. And I'll never forget. My drill instructor looked right in my eyes. And I hate his guts. If I could have... Uh, they don't give you rifles then. You don't get rifles till later. And I'm, I hate his guts, and I'm looking at him, and he said, I just want you guys to know, but before we finish our training here, if I was to tell you to go over there and get a plane and bring it to me at the airport, there's, we're right next to the airport, you can see all these planes flying away to freedom, and you think, oh, Lord, how do I get on one of those? But <clears throat> he'd say... Before this is over, I'm, if I told you, go get a plane, you'll do it. And I remember saying, you are crazy. When I'm done looking at your face, I'm not ever going to think about you again. But before it was over, if he'd have told me to go get him a plane, I'd have went. And everybody in the platoon would have come with me. At that point in the training, <clears throat> he was like the king. If he said go, you went. That's how you were going to live. Because really what you find out is, if you're somewhere in the middle of the sand having to go do things you don't want to do, <coughs> you don't got time to think. You just got to go. When they say go, you go. When it says in the scripture that, that we treat God like our king, it's in my mind, that's the kind of obedience I see. I don't got to know why. If God said it, that's enough. He said it. That's how it ought to be. He's my king. And the second thing it says, the second type of relationship that it talks about, he says, not only is he my king, but he's my God. Which means not only should he be obeyed, but he should also be worshipped. What is the one thing God wanted? We talked about in the beginning. That we love him. What is worship? An expression of love to someone else. An expression of love. It's, that's worship. The word in the, in the Greek is the word proskuneu, which means to turn toward as though you were going to kiss. It's, it's like a word that you would use between two lovers. They see each other from across the room. They run to each other. And the look that they have for each other, before they kiss, before there's any embrace, that's proskuneu. The Bible calls that worship. It's having that attitude toward God. That attitude toward God, that I love Him. I want to express how I love God. That's the idea of worship. So, these are the two relationships. He says in verse 4, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Now, who's he talking about? Those birds. 
The psalmist is sitting back going, man, them lucky birds, look at them. They get to live right there in the house of God. They're right there in the altar, man. Blessed are those who get to, to live here, live, be with you. he goes on in verse 5 blessed is the man whose strength is in you so he moves from his longing of God he talks about just a minute ago we're talking about having a home with God right a place where where we fit in like those sparrows having a home with God now he's talking about the man whose strength is God he says blessed or oh how happy is the man whose strength is in you whose heart is set on pilgrimage What's he talking about? Okay, now he's talking about having our strength in God, our uh, our uh, the the reason behind our passion is Him. The reason behind our ability to continue to go on to live uh, uh, comes from Him, and and we recognize that our life is a pilgrimage. Think about Abraham. The Bible says Abraham was an incredible man of faith because he lived in a tent his whole life. Because he was looking for a home that was where God was. He said he's looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He's looking for, for God, God's land. He's looking to be in God's place. So he recognized, Abraham recognized, this place is not my home. <clears throat> so might as well live in a tent. None of this stuff comes with me. And so, <clears throat> even though Abraham lived in a tent, it's a pretty nice tent. He had a lot of stuff. Abraham was, was not a poor man. He had a lot of stuff. But his attitude was, hey man, I, I just want to be where God is. His heart was set on pilgrimage. We're on a journey, right? And the end all beat all of this journey is not having a, a, a certain amount of success here. The end all beat all of this journey is to arrive home. To come into the to the temple of God, to come into the dwelling place of God, and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Welcome home. This is where you belong. You were born for this. I don't know about you, but I spend most of my life looking for some place to belong. And sometimes I thought it was here or there or the other place, but sooner or later, it just wasn't quite it. it might have been good, but it just wasn't quite it. When we arrive in the presence of God you're going to realize that's the place I was made for. This is it. I'm a home. Finally home. Uh, Mercy Me has a, a song. I, I might do it on Friday. I don't know. <clears throat> for uh, Marianne's service uh, is on Friday at 2. But the song is called <clears throat> uh, Homesick. And the idea of the song Homesick is the, 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 the guy singing, what's his name, baby? You know him. You know everybody. Yeah, Millard. That's the one. Bart Millard. He's singing about his dad. And the, the idea that <clears throat> we, people leave here. They, they die here and they go be home in heaven. And he's singing, man, I, I'm homesick. Not for here. I'm homesick to be there. You know, I grow weary of God taking us one at a time. I, I'm looking forward to the all at once ticket. But between now and then... He says, I've never been more homesick because people I care about, people I love, and Jesus himself, right? Which is not somewhere beneath all those people we love, but, but should be that, that one great joy of our, of our heart. <coughs> he's there, and because he's there, that's where I want to be. So this is, that's the idea that he's laying out here. Blessed is a man whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, Baca means uh, aspen. It's, uh, and I'm not sure that it's our kind of aspen. <clears throat> it's a little tree that grows in the desert of Israel. They call aspen. I don't know if it's the same as ours. But it's a dry, arid place. So instead of meaning like the, the valley of the aspen, what it means is the valley of the thirsty. A place where <clears throat> there's not a lot of water. So though I walk through the valley of the thirsty, look what happens. They make it a spring. The rain covers it with pools. The idea is, even though I'm in a dry and thirsty land, that I know that that it's going to be, I'm going to have the water that I need. I'm going to have the refreshment that I need. That, that God provides us. He makes it rain in the desert. And so what happens to the people? They go from strength to strength. 
Whose strength did we start in? And our relationship with God, how did we start that relationship? In our strength or His? It's in His. And how do we finish it? In His. <laughs> From strength to strength. He gives us the strength to begin the journey. He gives us the strength in the middle of the journey. He gives us the strength at the end of the journey. So we move from the place of thirst where God provides us the drink that we need, but we move from a thirsty place that doesn't satisfy to Zion. Each one appears before God in Zion. So we move from a dry, thirsty place where God provides to a place where God's presence is. That's what it is to be a man in the strength of God, holding on to the hope of God, that we have a home with God, that we long to be with Him. And then he says in verse 8, O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield. Look upon the face of your anointed. He's just crying out to God in a a moment of praise, lifting his arms up to God, asking God to, to see him, to hear him. To, to know that he is there, to look upon his face. And then in verse 10, we, we hit the, the peak. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. The Hebrew mindset, as far as you go. You might say thousands times thousands, but they didn't have a number past that. So they'd say, in the Greek mind, the number's 10,000. So when we get into the New Testament, they'll say 10,000. He could have called... 10,000 angels. Does he mean 10,000? No, he's saying that's the biggest number there is. Here, he's saying one day with God is better than every day. All the days piled on top of each other. One day in his presence is better than all the days. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So I'd rather be low janitor in God's house than have all the freedom I want in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather, I'd rather be low with God than high with the wicked. I don't want to be in that place. <clears throat> For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. How many good things will he withhold? No good thing. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Psalm 84, a psalm about longing, desiring, wanting God with our entire being. And uh, it's, great, it's a great reminder for us to say, this is, the, this is the passion that we want boiling in us. This is the desire that we want coming through us. And prayerfully, <coughs> we recognize that that doesn't come as a result of my willpower. That's kind of the point of the psalm, right? I long for God, my home's with God, but where's my strength? God. So my strength to fulfill my desire, the strength to to be the man that that I need to be to love God, where's that love come from? According to Romans chapter 5, the scripture tells us that the love of God is put in your heart by the Holy Spirit. The ability to meet the requirements of God is given to you by God. Everything we need is in Him, with Him, and for Him. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.